0: Financial institutions are struggling to move fast enough to compete with new players. Their legacy tech and processes are holding them back. But there is an answer. Our new report, titled Rebuilding Financial Services from the Inside, is a comprehensive guide to what tech teams in financial institutions are thinking and what they want the rest of the business to understand to help them move forward. Head to bit.ly forward slash 11FS rebuild to download it now. From 11FS, this is InsureTech Insider News. Today, we bring you Suez ship owner calls for freight owners to split damages, InsureTech investments hit a new record, and Australian man sets up a fake physio studio to help a friend out. All this and more on today's show. Hello, and welcome to InsureTech Insider, episode 91. I'm Sarah Kachansky. Today's show is a news show where we'll be talking about the most interesting news stories of the week just gone. Uh, as always, I'm not alone, but I'm joined by my co-host, Nigel Walsh. How are you doing today, Nigel?
1: I am fine and dandy, thank you very much. I'm enjoying the sunshine, unlike my walk yesterday in the hail.
0: Yes, the weather has been somewhat mixed here. We had um, golf ball-sized hailstones this afternoon, and then it rained, and now the sun's back out again. So welcome to spring in the UK. To dive into the news this week, we are joined by some excellent guests. So first up, we have Lisa Conway, Chief Underwriting Officer at Battleface. How are you doing today, Lisa?
2: Good. Also enjoying the lovely rain here in New York City. (laughs) Um, Could you give us a bit of an overview of what Battleface is, please? Sure. Battleface provides global travel insurance and assistance solutions using technology to help travelers build customized plans so they're not getting coverage they don't need. Brilliant. We are also joined by Maria
0: Goy, co founder and COO at Spot. How are you today, Maria? I'm um, well, and it sounds
3: like UK weather is a little like uh, Austin, Texas weather right now, with the random hailstorms, thunder showers, <laughs> and bright sunshine today.
0: We we have to start this podcast by talking about the weather, you understand, because we're British. So, I mean, of course,
3: I, I lived in the UK for a couple of years. So, yeah. yeah, so you
0: you understand what's <laughs> happening here. So, this is your first time on InsureTech Insider. Can you tell us a little bit about Spot, please? Yeah, I would love to. Thanks for having me. Bot is a tech
3: startup offering subscription-on-demand injury insurance that protects everyone from athletes and adventurers to families at home. We really have two lines of business, a direct-to-consumer, and then partnerships are really playing on the embedded distribution of insurance, uh, looking to make insurance more affordable and changing the distribution game in the U.S because we do not, unfortunately, have universal healthcare in this country. So we're really looking to solve a number of problems around changing the perception of insurance from being a grudge purchase to a lifestyle, as well as the customer
0: experience. Brilliant. Well, I'm sure we'll touch on some issues that actually affect you both as we get into the show. So let's kick off. The first story today is that the Suez ship owner has called for freight owners to split the damages. So the owners of the ship, the Ever Given, that blocked the Suez Canal for nearly a week are asking the owners of the freight on board the ship to take on some of the costs of the damages demanded by the Egyptian authorities. This sort of damage sharing arrangement is often used in maritime accidents covered by insurance. In this case, the Ever Given's owners apparently are some of the owners of of the uh, approximately 18,000 containers on the ship to basically cover some of the costs. The total costs are estimated to be about $16 million, but the exact amount hasn't been disclosed, um, nor is the amount of that that would be covered by insurance. The ship's owners said last month that they were negotiating with the Egyptian authorities over the compensation amount and that the boat is currently being held halfway between the north and south ends of the canal for inspection. Um, It won't be allowed to leave until a settlement is reached. It all sounds a bit he said, she said, and uh, it's going to take a while to sort of un untangle this, I imagine. I guess, I, I don't know, does anybody have any sort of like initial thoughts on this one? Does anyone want to go first?
1: It sounds like a ransom more than anything else. As in, we're not letting you go until until you've cleared your debts.
0: Yeah, but I think I think there's two parts there, isn't there? So there's, we're not letting you go until you've cleared your debts from the Egyptian authorities. And then it's the ship owner saying, we're not letting you have your freight back until you've paid some of the costs. Given that this is supposed to be an arrangement that happens when it's covered by insurance, I would have thought perhaps this is would be more explicit in the terms, or is this a, another case of insurers having slightly vague policy language?
3: I think the slightly vague policy language across the board, right, when you look at what's covered, and I know we get into this a little bit later, but, you know, sort of talking about the impact of the pandemic, right, they're just things that you don't necessarily account for so I think a lot of policy language being vague works at times for the carrier and it works at times for the actual policyholder themselves. And this being such an interesting, fascinating case of sort of like a world impact. And I just think that understanding sort of where that goes will be really fascinating for a precedent-setting because this won't be the last of the type of issue we see.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting. Uh, I mean, it's, it's it's a scenario that we've talked about before. It's only happened three times, I think, before the Suez Canal has been has been closed, and so there hasn't been an awful lot of time for people to, to gather data and work out um, what to do in these scenarios. I mean, I'm just thinking, Lisa, about what Battleface does, and now you know, I imagine that if you're a, a mariner on this ship, you're slightly different sort of insurance you have. But thinking about the sort of policies that you know that the, the Battleface writes, I mean, how would what would you think about this scenario? if you're like, oh, well, we're stuck somewhere in the Suez Canal because a ship's got jammed. You know, is that the kind of thing that you, you think, oh, God, how, how do we approach that? Is that something that Battleface might <laughs> might have an approach to, I suppose?
2: Yeah, I, I guess when we think about travel insurance, at least from a U.S. perspective, there aren't many business travelers that are covered by it. So that's interesting. But, you know, from a from a business interruption perspective, I think it, it's very interesting because we are talking about outside of the ship being stuck, we're talking about businesses who are affected globally, who can't receive their goods and are then prevented from sales. So it's really an interesting perspective. And I think the coverages that we're talking about, specifically the hull and the, the ransom payment, so to speak, I feel like there's missing coverage, but there's also so many different insurances at play here um, that maybe we're all looking at each other saying, who is covering what?
0: Yeah, it seems like there's a huge amount of that because you've got the freight owners have got coverage, the ship owners got coverage, the canals got coverage. Presumably there is some kind of coverage for the people who are employed. I know that there was talk a while ago about them basically being like, how many weeks are we going to have to be
1: stuck on this ship? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting about the coverages. I, I actually have a friend who was impacted by the ship being blocked because he's a small trader that sells goods on Amazon and other sites in the UK, you know, small family business. But he was told he couldn't ship stuff from India to the UK because of the blockage, had to pay for storage in India whilst all these things were going on. But you can imagine if this sort of clause did come into play, it would be on page 137, nothing plain English that no one would really understand or actually ever get to. So I can't imagine, you know my friend saying I'm going to ship a couple of thousand pounds of stuff in a container to accept the clause going oh by the way if it gets stuck in the Suez Canal you'll pay part of the damages could be up to 16 million it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on,
0: I, I don't, it, there is no details. One of the things that's interesting about this is there are no details. Like nobody's giving anything away. And presumably that's because, you know, the first one to break, you know, is, is revealing something and they, they lose a position of power. But I'm wondering if there are 18,000 containers on this ship, if the people that they're speaking to to ask to cover some of the damages are not your mate who's trying to ship 2,000 things from India, but they are the people who've got, you know, 8,000 containers. Lisa, you wanted to jump in there?
2: I was also wondering if there are any type of exclusions in this policy that no one's coming forward with, such as a government regulation or prohibition. If the Egyptian government is holding the ship there, maybe that sort of exclusion clause could come into place with these types of policies as well. So that could be very interesting.
0: Absolutely. A little bit like when the UK government cause small businesses to have to shut it's it's a government decision you know it wasn't those businesses I think this will be kind of an interesting one to watch I think given what we've seen that you know the the world attention the the, that's been put on it I think there's going to have to be some kind of not necessarily investigating but it's all going to have to come out eventually right because they can't sweep this under the carpet 30 years ago they might have been able to sort of say oh well they paid somebody off there and they just kind of came to terms between themselves but there is so much attention on this right now that it's, it's going to have to have an impact.
1: Although it's out of the news almost, isn't it? It's almost like it comes up now and then, but it's almost we're back onto other things that are more pressing and all those good things around COVID and everything else again.
0: Is that true of the insurance industry? Because I think the insurance industry probably watches a different kind of news.
1: It's a fair shout. I think people's attention has moved on already, at least from what I'm seeing, but fair shout.
0: All right. Talking of moving on, let's move on to the next story, which is that insure tech investments have hit a new record. So global investment in the insure tech sector has bounced back from its COVID-19-related slowdown a year ago. It's now hit a new quarterly high of 2.55 billion in Q1. Eight companies accounted for more than 1.13 billion of that, which was 44% of the total raised. The total funding during the quarter grew 180% compared to the first quarter of 2020, um, which had obviously seen a big decline with bit concerned about the pandemic. Investment was driven primarily by PNC-focused companies, which represented 69% of the deal share. Um, and the first quarter also saw the most geographically diverse set of early-stage startups in a single quarter, representing 24% countries so i think there's a few there's a few different things to look at here i mean one you know it's bounced back from the pandemic or is looking to that's good Two, continuation of that trend where we see very few companies getting you know a, a large proportion of it raising very big rounds and perhaps three this this geographical diversity is is encouraging, I think, particularly on the early stage side. And I'm sure you guys have other points (laughs) or want want to build on those. I mean, Lisa, you were nodding there. Uh,
2: Yeah, I find it interesting uh, and encouraging, especially for companies like Battleface, because we are focused on providing a choice to consumers, which is not what traditional insurance necessarily does. It also gives us the ability to educate consumers about the importance of insurance. So it's not a, a purchase that, as, as Maria said, is, is begrudging to a consumer. It makes them want to buy insurance. And the technology allows us to do that now. So it's it's really exciting, actually.
0: Maria, what are your thoughts on this
3: one? Not surprised at all. I think insurance is the last vertical to disrupt what many of us are doing. It's just beginning to scratch the surface across the board. I also think the pandemic has been an opportunity for a lot of individuals to think about how we can better the system across the board throughout different countries, um, as well as be more customer centric. I think customers are demanding more. I think the pandemic has definitely taught us a lot. And those gaps in coverage that people have experienced and have just had more time to dig into, I think there's been a lot of curiosity from the customer base. And I think that's forcing different solutions across the board. So I think it's exciting. I think that we, again, are sort of scratching the surface and there's so much more to come from tech, you know, in the next two to three years, especially as we start to look at, you know, furthering how data is utilized across the board. So it's exciting um, and not surprising at all.
0: Yeah, no, no, I think it's been great to see. I'm just wondering, um, particularly maybe Lisa and Maria talking about, you know, some of the companies that I've done really well here are, are health insurance companies. And that's of more interest in the US perhaps than, than it is in the UK, given the different health systems. I mean, what, you know, presumably the pandemic has been hugely influential on those companies being able to raise.
3: Absolutely. I think, again, sort of what's happened here in the US without a better healthcare system is people have seen what's broken. And they're looking for alternatives with job loss across the board. More than 50% of Americans get their health insurance through employer-based benefits. And so we saw the impact of the pandemic and the layoffs. I think individuals were looking for uh, alternative solutions. And it's unfortunate that we don't have better solutions in in the U.S. And so I think those startups that are really starting to help unravel comprehensive healthcare and make it more affordable and accessible to individuals, is just amazing
0: and it's not a surprise that's where a lot of the investment has been going across the board. I mean Lisa, does that chime with your experience and what you're seeing across the industry as well?
2: Absolutely. As I mentioned, that choice is so important now to be able to offer consumers what they want and as with medical insurance and travel insurance it's something we've been trying to educate the american populace for quite a while most us policies don't cover when people go abroad and most people assume that they have coverage or most us residents assume that they have coverage so it's something that we've been working on as an industry for many many years and so having a technology solution to be able to educate consumers is really important to us as well. So it's, it's really exciting. Yeah, Nigel, what are your thoughts on this?
1: I think you picked up on a couple of the themes that I thought were really interesting. One was health, as you say, so I won't cover that again. The other one is if you look back to first half 2020, there was zero net new startups. It was like a grinding halt, money was going up, but people coming to the market was low. What you see now with the likes of Zigo and Next through their expansions in Europe, through the partnerships with Amazon respectively, I think are amazing stories to go. We now have organizations of scale, size and valuation that people are starting to pay attention to. The other two themes I think are interesting above and beyond health are small business and cyber. And they come up time and time again as almost niches or areas where we keep seeing it growing and growing and growing. But back to the point that Lisa made around, educating the US populace, I think it's a case of there's still a really early stages. The opportunity is massive still. So it we we really are at early early days. And I suspect we're going to keep seeing more and more of this going going forward. We did actually see a spin-out of one of the major insurers as well with an AI startup where they went, it's too big, let's push it out externally and let it run on its own. So We've seen lots more models come to market as a result
0: of that. Yeah, I think perhaps the um, insurance sector, being you know a little bit behind, as you know, has already been touched on. But the, you mean know, the, the greater financial services sector, particularly banking. Perhaps some of the more savvy providers and investors have watched what's gone on there and thought, ah, oh, we could learn from that. Let's not do it that way. Let's do it differently, which is perhaps leading to these new business models, which is super helpful. I think talking of new business models as well, what the, the changes in behaviour that the pandemic has wrought are going to have to make insurers think about new business models I mean one that really springs to mind is, is car insurance or auto insurance I mean my poor car sits on you know the road for, for three weeks at a time without being taken to so much as the supermarket because where would I go and you know that 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 means for car insurers they're having to think long and hard about about how they provide I mean Maria is that similar in the US is there kind of a, a having to rethink auto insurance over there
3: yeah it's really interesting i've lived across europe and asia and there's nowhere i've ever lived that loves cars like americans so all of that said uh, you know there is a decline definitely in auto insurance in 2020 i think Deloitte estimated roughly six percent for personal and three and a half percent for commercial lines i think across the board you're seeing that probably extend into 2021 Um, In 2022, I think that the new normal, right, will challenge the pandemic has forced people to think about different ways of living, sort of the increase in electric bikes and how mobility is covered. So while there's a decline in automobile insurance, I think that'll be interesting to see sort of what pops up around covering folks that are planning to be mobile.
1: And I think uh, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, Ziga is a good example of that, about mobility, dare I say, uh, sarah's and i's dreaded word e-scooters so they're making more of a more of a comeback i did actually um comment about nick pastor from zego being on an e-scooter the other day and i was like oh my god help us the other thing i think sarah you mentioned this about things like healthcare though is now we've got there it's never going back i don't want to sit in a doctor's surgery if I don't need to or for anyone that's used video-based telemedicine or telehealth it works. It works brilliantly and it works in my timeline. Mm. So why would I go and stand somewhere else if I don't need to?
0: So you and I have disagreed about this before. I think for a lot of cases that can be true, but there's a couple of examples where I think it's not working so particularly there's there's one the case that was um a child who had a rash and the doctor trying to see the rash via you the, the video, the telemedicines, oh it's just this or oh, it's just that, it was actually very serious and the child ended up you know in a coma and rushed to hospital because it was a first sign of septicemia. And so the point is that the video you, that's great if you've got the quality technology at home and you've got a good internet connection. But if you've got neither of those things, then you are, you're going to struggle. And the point of... I want to the point on my connectivity is one I've made like a few times this week. We can't keep rushing towards an assumption that everybody has access to data or the internet. So if healthcare provision becomes more and more pushed in the direction of, of people who can do those kinds of things at home, you're going to leave a huge percentage of people behind. So I think there's two points. I think there's one, there will be some cases where you always need to see a doctor <laughs> because you need to show them something and go, look at this. Um, and two, you can't... I think we have to be careful as we rush towards like making healthcare provision particularly better and better digitally, but we don't leave behind the people who can't access healthcare digitally.
1: You're spot on. I was gonna say, and actually I have that example personally. My daughter had a lump under her neck. She'll never listen to the surgeon, so what they might be saying. But she had a lump under her neck during the pandemic. We did the video call. They said that we can't diagnose it this way. You had to go in. And it was you know back to see a GP physically in a COVID safe environment whatever else he saw it and she was straight out again and it was all fine within about three minutes, but you're absolutely right. And I can't remember the number, I think it's like five to eight percent of people in the UK alone don't have access to internet, never mind fast internet.
0: Yeah, it some um, 11% of households don't have access. Wow. Okay, well, I'm going to um, take us to a break there, but we'll be back very soon. Trust in financial services has been increasing. But with trust in technology companies decreasing and the pandemic accelerating the shift to digital financial services, it's more important than ever to actively build and maintain trust. In association with MyTech, we've launched a report that explores the current trust issues facing financial services brands and how they can be overcome. Head to bit.ly forward slash digital trust report 2021 to download it now. Okay, welcome back. And now it's over to you, Nigel.
1: Thank you very much. Now, this one might be a very British one. And I say that because I've heard stories of things that are going on in other countries that mean this is not true elsewhere. But I'm sure Lisa and Maria will tell us if it's not. This story is all about festivals being in the mud. And it's a story from The Times talking about after heavy losses from cancelled events in 2020, festival organizers faced tough decisions as to whether or not they can hold events this year without insurance. Britain's events sector was worth almost 40 billion before COVID, with music events accounting for nearly half of that. In late April, the UK Vaccines Minister warned that summer festivals still might not go ahead despite the UK being on track to lift all COVID restrictions by June 21. 26% of UK festivals, with more than 5,000 people attending, including Glastonbury, have already been scrapped with many citing concerns regarding insurance. And last but by no means least, many underwriters refuse to cover COVID-related cancellations, which leaves organisers facing big financial risks. This has prompted, of course, many organisers for call for a government-backed insurance scheme. So, boo to this, because I've had loads of events cancelled. I'm sure, Sarah, you have as well from previous conversations. Is this an issue in other countries as well?
2: Yes, I'm very disappointed that all of my Broadway shows have been canceled at least through the fall. And also, I don't know if you know this, but travel insurance, a subset of travel insurance is event ticket cancellation. So we've seen a huge hit from canceled events as well, having to return premiums for events that didn't take place.
1: Maria, you are seeing the same as well?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the distribution side, we're getting a lot of requests, right, for the underwriting of it, asking for it to be included ticket refund insurance, membership refund insurance. It's really interesting, right? But I don't think the appetite there for the carriers, nobody's interested in writing it right now because we just don't know what's going to happen in the next eight months.
1: One, one for you, Sarah, on this one, if I may, is what would a government-backed scheme look like? I mean, how would people even start thinking about this to try and get us out of the, the quagmire that we're in?
0: I mean, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because there's been a lot of, there's been this unprecedented, I hate that term, but it really has been unprecedented calls on governments to fund things, you know, across the board, Well, you know, with health insurance or vaccine schemes or furlough schemes or business insurance, you know. And then, you know, I would not want a job as a politician right now trying to prioritise even where to put the money we have, let alone, you know, how, how to borrow more money. I mean, I think the problem we've got in the UK is that the hospitality industry is – and I'm including events under hospitality is such a huge, huge segment of of our economy here. It's kind of, I think my personal opinion is that it's not been treated particularly well by the British government. I think that they have failed to recognise the contribution that hospitality makes. And that perhaps if somebody had thought about it a little bit earlier on, we might, we might have more of an idea. Because you just got to think about how many different types of people are employed under that one heading of, of hospitality. I think if you're going to talk about what a government scheme might look like, I think it's going to have to be, from what I can see, it's going to have to be big insurers coming together with government and having some kind of split, you know, in kind of what what you're going to see in terms of backup. So a little bit like the furlough scheme, you know, the government will pay 80%, then 70%, then 60%, then 50%. The employer, or in this case, the insurance company, perhaps has to pick up the other half of it. I think that's particularly true if the festival is cancelled, because as is right now happening, the government isn't giving them they don't know if they can go ahead. So they would have to say the event is going ahead and then outlay huge amounts of money on booking you know, caterers and toilets and fences and stages and, and all that stuff. And then the government might come along and say, mm, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Um, and I think, you know, to our earlier point, whilst the government is the one who has the final say on whether it is or isn't going ahead, they have to step up a little bit here and either say right now, no, you're not allowed to do it, nobody is, or you are allowed to do it under these terms, or we'll work with you to find an insurance policy. But at the moment you can't leave people hanging for the second year in a row. You just got to make a decision.
1: It's really interesting. And I think your point about the help us get through this thing is, you know, even in the article as well, it talks about large events of 5,000 people or more. I am aware of smaller events going ahead. There was an event in Liverpool that went, actually I think it was, think it was about 3,000, maybe it was even more
0: Yeah,
1: um, that went ahead. It's a rave. <laughs> I looked at it and went, oh, that looks amazing. Then I thought I'm way too old for this, but it was nice. To, it was basically, a, they, and they called it out as a massive data experiment to work out what happens if people are, you know, have, have been detected with COVID or whatever else. Everyone goes to tests beforehand and, and what's not, but everyone seemed to be enjoying it. And we're happy to go back there as quickly as possible. I guess in the U S this is, is it state by state or is it federal? How, how does it work? How does it work there?
2: It's state by state, so New York City isn't expected to open up until mid-May, and I think we're expecting Broadway and other f- large event concert spaces to probably restart uh, in September or fall, and I think, Maria, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I believe Texas is already holding concerts.
3: Yeah, we are pretty much raving on the streets. I so sharing with Sarah prior to the call, it's really interesting. You kind of go out uh, and I live along the river, and there are thousands of people out there every weekend, inner tubing, kayaking. So it's it's really interesting to see how state by state has rolled that out, but how the rollout of the vaccine now state by state is also impacting that. And Nigel, to your point on the festivals, I found it really interesting. I was listening to another podcast earlier in the week, and they were talking about how certain festivals here in the US that are being held, the counties where those are being held are just mandating that a percentage of the county is vaccinated prior to the festival actually happening. So they're trying to ensure that they're protecting the populace, but I think that sense of people just want to go out there and live, yeah, we definitely want to see that come through.
1: We've seen it in Australia and New Zealand for months now, almost a life back to normal. I've got friends down there, there Sarah, you've got family there, where it's almost normal, but they're not letting anyone in. So it's kind of like, we're fine, thanks very much, but we're going out for beers with friends or to concerts or parties or theatres, and it's like, God, it feels like a lifetime ago almost, isn't
0: it? It's actually not fine, though, because Sydney's got a huge outbreak right now and is looking at bringing in restrictions again. So they don't know how this case got there, but they had a big hotel outbreak in Melbourne and then they've got one chap who has been very active socially in sydney (laughs) and i did that in inverted commas i don't know what that means but that's what the press said so i don't i'm not going to speculate anyway the point is he had it and now they've got an outbreak so i just think the point is that you you can't take your eye off it i think particularly as we know that some of these new variants are going to um be resistant to you know the vaccines we're already talking here in the uk about giving some people a third jab in september to give them an update i think my point is that for the people like the events industry, they have to be thinking about how they live with this now and not thinking it'll go back to the way it was. You have to be thinking, what do we do when this happens every spring? Because that's the mindset.
1: Because they're not even going to be back to full capacity. Even Broadway, when it opens up, they not going to be back to full capacity immediately. I've seen all the things for... Theatres in London opening up over time. It's funny, Sarah, you mentioned the uh, the socially active I'm, I'm now doing the birth we got this, sorry. But I saw one of the drug companies say cold and flu meds were down but contraceptives and morning after pills were up on the release of lockdown. So I'm not gonna make any judgment on that other than people are going back to normal activity. Lisa, you had a point to add as well.
2: Yeah, so so one of the interesting things about venues opening to certain capacities is New York State actually rolled out the first vaccine pass, the Excelsior pass that you can download onto your phone if you've had a vaccine in New York State and you're now required to show those going into a stadium. For example, I'm going to a a Mets game, Citi Field next week. And I've downloaded that pass. It shows that I'm fully vaccinated and I'm allowed into the stadium. So that's going to be very interesting how different states, countries pick up on those vaccine passports, whether they'll require them to enter large festivals, whether we'll still feel safe. Yeah. It'll be very interesting.
0: That was an interesting thing. They mooted it over here, but then everybody under the age of 40 went, hang on a minute, you haven't allowed us. (laughs) to have a vaccine yet so you can't you can't be saying that we're not allowed to do these things I know that um you were saying earlier that it's a bit different in the states anybody who who wants one can get one but I think to your point it is there are huge social and ethical questions there as well about you know what can you force people to
1: do or not do I'm sure we have all seen the memes that are flying around as well of, of grandma and grandpa heading off to the Ibiza islands and parting away because of course they're the only ones that were vaccinated at one point that said we shouldn't underestimate the amazing effort that both the uk and us have done on getting populations vaccinated i think we've done a, a, an outstanding job before we finish on this one um listen maybe one for you on the underwriting side I, I get really frustrated watching the news on a sunday morning and and insurance being blamed for it can you share i guess it's it's, it's reasonably straightforward but can you share why insurers wouldn't underwrite something that's almost a too likely an event to take place, I guess, is is why they're refusing it. But would love your perspective from an underwriter. So,
2: so strangely enough, travel insurance actually is covering COVID illness huh. for medical expenses, sickness, while well, and if you, or if you get it while you're traveling or if you're quarantined. So, we are one of the few insurance lines that are actually covering it because we do recognize that the frequency is so low, especially in our case where you have to be traveling to get it or you have to have travel plans to cancel. And have coverage. So, so we actually do recognize and, and cover it in the travel industry. But I think in general, this one just sort of caught everyone off guard. It, it was it's standard insurance language to exclude pandemics and epidemics. And I think it is language that's just in the policy that no one really thought about, frankly.
1: I think a good place to move on. And with that, I'm actually gonna stay on the theme of COVID. I'm not sure uh what Hannah was doing to me this week, but we're gonna stay on the theme of COVID. And this is actually, I think, a really strong story about Marsh and Chubb teaming up on COVID vaccine program. This is the announcement that a collaboration with the World Health Organization and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, to secure insurance coverage for a program that will offer eligible people in 92 low income countries a fast, fair and transparent process to receive compensation for rare but serious side effects associated with COVID-19 vaccinations. Um, Vaccines have been distributed by COVAX, which was created to accelerate the development and manufacture of COVID-19 vaccines and guarantee their fair and equitable distribution to every country in the world. Through the collaboration, up to $150 million in insurance is provided through the COVAX No-Fault Compensation Programme. The background to this is Marsh led the global placement with Chubb being the lead insurer, backed by 10 insurers across the UK U.S., Germany, Ireland, Switzerland and Bermuda. Now, if ever organisations in my world all came together to solve and keep the world moving, this is a a fantastic example of how insurance is supposed to work. Where do we start? Maria, would love your take on this.
3: Yeah, I think it's incredible. You know, when we think about the pandemic, it's a global impact too, which we've never had to on a global scale respond to. So you see a number of different, you know, organizations, whether or not scientific, from medical community, et cetera, coming together to work. And so I think it's, to your point, a really high-fly story of how insurance should work.
1: Well, so Covax is fascinating, right? And I'm sure you've probably seen on the on the news and elsewhere, and we certainly have it, it, it shared daily with us here, is, you know, we're not all safe till everyone's vaccinated. And as I said earlier, or a second ago, it's wonderful to see the efforts in um, the UK and US. But if those borders are locked down for other reasons to other countries, and we get variants creeping in, because we haven't vaccinated developing countries, we are in trouble, right. And I think, the COVAX aims to deliver up to 2 billion doses by the end of 2021, including 1.7 doses to the 92 AMC eligible countries and economies. Sarah, then if you've got a perspective on the, the distribution of vaccines and, and, and what that's going to do and how we use insurance, I guess, to unlock travel, or unlock the global economy on a, on a broader basis.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because you know, you know you've got Particularly, what comes to mind immediately is tourism, and so a lot of the places that have done quite well thus far at avoiding, you know, the outbreaks are are more remote, some more beautiful places where perhaps populations are are more vulnerable. So they're going to want to open up for tourists which is you know a large part of their income but then they're going to put their local population at huge risk because they they haven't been exposed so it kind of springs to mind as perhaps a way to to help those nations that are crippled their economies are crippled because nobody's visiting them because they can't visit them but they also don't necessarily have the the funds or resources themselves to ensure that their their own people are, are are safe if they do start letting tourists back in so that seems to be a way that you know this would help you everybody it would help those of us who want to go to beautiful far-flung locations and also do so in a responsible way that means we're not introducing something to, to, to a country that's that's done you know well to avoid it thus far and also you know allowing them to, to get back on their feet economically because I think you know we talk quite a lot about countries being left behind by not being able to access the vaccine but also there's a huge number of countries that are being left behind for other economic reasons where governments can't afford to furlough people or because large parts of their economy is is built on trades that just can't function in in the way the world is right now
1: it's an interesting one i mean you've talked about tourism quite a lot there do do you also think there's a by creating this global program are we taking away any of the anxiety from people taking the vaccine in the first place because often people have gone oh we're not taking it for uh whatever reason it might be and we've seen different religious groups coming out and saying, during Ramadan, it's safe to take it, you should go ahead and do it. We've had other ethnic groups going, oh, we can't take this. There's been loads of misinformation about it in in, in varying different countries. Um, do you think programs like this would reassure individuals or families to take it and not have to worry about the side effects or cost of care should they need to?
3: You know, I would hope that it does. I mean, healthcare accounts for roughly 66% of bankruptcies in the U.S. Something from medical bills. So I think that having a relief program there um, is helpful. I just also think that it's so much of, you know, to your point, different perspectives, right? People are going to go down a rabbit hole of if I want to take the vaccine or not. Most arguments I'm hearing is we just don't know what the side effect is going to be in two years. It's not necessarily about the medical costs. Although I do hope that that does drive a certain segment forward. But in the U.S., I think it's just uh, having those types of programs, I think, does offer that type of relief to people who are concerned. And I hope that does start to drive up the numbers um, that we start to see. I don't know, Lisa, if you're seeing anything different in New York.
2: No, I think taking away any sort of barrier to getting the vaccine is is helpful in any way, especially the financial risk of having to take time off if there are any side effects or symptoms, uh, especially in the U.S., uh, because paid time off is very slim mm-hmm. for a lot of the workers who are hesitant to get vaccine.
1: Yeah, and we've seen quite a few, actually it's a really good point, we've seen quite a few companies offer people time off to either um, help with the vaccination uh, volunteer programs or go and get it themselves, which I think has been absolutely wonderful. Uh, let me finish on one point. It took a it took a pandemic, but Sarah, to you, is, is there anywhere else this could be extended that we, or should be extended to? Because it's lovely to see the private sector and public government bodies and 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 non-profits get together to solve you know huge crises like these is there other things that we should apply the same logic to to remove these barriers as a as a you know coalition almost rather well, than the events industry? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think I think they could probably do something if they work together there. I think I think on a on a more serious note, you know, this coverage could be linked to broader vaccination programs. Let's talk about polio. Let's talk about you know Ebola. Let's talk about we, we're gonna have more pandemics, guys. People tell me I'm negative when I say that, but if we keep encroaching on the natural landscape and coming into contact with environments we should not be in contact with. We are going to keep finding things (laughs) that aren't very good for us. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I mentioned Ebola there, but that that came about from, what we think are similar circumstances to covid um to do with with, with humans you know I- invading natural habitats and, and coming across a- animals and, and and viruses they carried that we wouldn't naturally do so so i think um maybe it needs to become you know a broader program more accepted particularly for those for those global vaccination programs which are already in place but actually you know in some places polio is losing ground because again of of you know misinformation and and, and sometimes that's you know to do with religious beliefs or whatever but we, we can't we can't let this set us back, so let us help us move us forward, I guess.
1: Yeah, I was thinking other lines of business as well. I mean, we've, we've talked about cyber a lot over the last 90-odd episodes and stuff, and I think cyber is one of those things that's probably too big for any carrier to manage. And when you see a collaboration between multiple carriers, broker, government, all get together, it's quite an interesting one to say, you know, what? how could we address the fear of getting started in the first place? So I, I, I hope to see many more things like this and initiatives and get-togethers to solve things like this, not just pandemic, so beyond pandemic. Um, With that, let me hand it back to you, Sarah.
0: Cool. So now it is time for stories we didn't have time to cover. So I'm going to go back to you, Nigel, for the first one.
1: Thank you very much. My first one is Zurich warning e-commerce boom could spark warehouse blaze uptick. And anyone who's... bought everyone who's lived at home for the last 12 to 14 months will realize their local delivery has turned up it feels like daily if not multiple times per day and to get there there's been a huge increase in the number of um, local or sub uh, distribution centers in the uk the home office has reported statistics that show that the number of warehouses gutted by fire has increased by 42 percent between 2019 and 2020 that now, although the number of fires has fallen in the long term, the cost of insurance claims has increased across the market. Zurich's claims data shows the average cost of a large warehouse fire is about £5.9 million. Pounds. So something to keep an eye on.
0: Car premiums see a record drop. So, the Association of British Insurers has released its Motor Insurance Premium Tracker, showing £436 as the average cost of comprehensive motor insurance in the first quarter of 2021. According to the ABI, which has been collecting data since 2012, the Q1 figure translates to a £32, or 7%, decrease from the average premium in the fourth quarter of last year. It's said to be the biggest quarterly decline in the trade body's records. The latest number represents an 8% drop from Q1 2020. Cool, great. I'm happy not using my car. Happy to pay less insurance. Um, I think the point I would make on this is to go back to something I've already said: is people's behaviour has changed. People's behaviour is unlikely to go straight back to what it was. Guys, let's think more creatively rather than just reducing the price by by eight percent. What's the new What's the new business model in in car insurance?
1: Although I am hearing trains are back to busyness, and I'm hearing that roads and traffic jams have started to increase again. So, who knows? Let's let's ask the same question in six months' time. The next one is Allianz tightens restrictions on coal, oil and sands business. And this is a, the latest in a long list of insurance organisations that are tightening up on the ESG agenda. Uh, this new policy will apply from 2023, so still uh, 24 months out, but companies building new coal-fired power plants will generally be not eligible for insurance coverage. Companies were previously to be excluded if they generated at least 25% of their electricity from coal and operated at least five gigawatts of installed coal fired generating capacity. Under the revised criteria, either one of those two criteria is enough to be excluded. So I think this is a huge change. And I think we've seen already with AXA, with Aviva, and many others, big shifts in the attitude to dirty energy or fossil fuels or so much more. And it's I think like, like insurance in general, it just takes one to start. And once they've started, there's a natural following for everyone else to follow. I think society as a whole has picked up this, You know, it's our time to do things now to the planet, to, to take as much action as we can to save it for future generations. And the insurance industry has to do its part. And I think really and truly has stood up with net zero campaigns, uh, with climate wise, and so many more. So I'm really, I'm really excited to see this. We're never going to get to electric vehicles, clean energy and all that sort of stuff if we keep allowing people to build coal and other dirty fuel plants. So this, for me, is a great thing to see.
0: All right. And that brings us to our and finally story, which is that an Australian man set up a fake physio studio to help his friend out. So this story, okay, I'm going to have to give context here, I think. So this story is related to a radio station in Australia called Triple J. And it has a segment on one of its shows, which is called Take It to the Next Level. So it's it's like a listener call-in, basically, um, where you tell outrageous stories. <laughs> so um, the listener in this, in this case was a chap named Todd, and he rang in to explain how he had helped a friend claim workers' compensation by pretending to be a physiotherapist back in 1997. Um, his friend had asked him to be a physio and have a fake physio studio that the friend could go to to fix his fake injury. So the pair went as far as actually creating a fake physio studio and then sent the insurance company bills to treat his injury on a regular basis and they got paid um, but apparently they eventually had to stop because they didn't know when to stop if that makes sense they basically they were quite clever so they were like went as far as they thought they could take it and then they're like yeah we're going to stop doing this now because they didn't actually know how long it would take um, a physio to treat this particular industry unsurprisingly the radio channel received some backlash with the insurance council of australia commenting that insurance fraud has cost the industry millions <laughs> i think it's quite an elaborate and interesting story but I do question the gentleman's thought process in telling this to the entire nation on the radio.
1: I see the funny side of it, but I also understand why the insurance council in Australia got all upset about it. It's like saying, making a bomb from things you can buy in your local supermarket is quite easy. We just don't want to tell everyone because it's kind of a silly thing to go do. It does highlight to your point that insurance fraud, A goes on and B is still too easy. So something that's, you know, we've seen fake car dealerships or, or ghost brokers we've talked about on the show in the past and so many other things just pop up that we've got to find ways and means to get rid of them and remove the easy barriers to get there quite quickly, I guess.
0: I just don't know how easy it is to set up a fake physio studio. I don't know. It feels like there's a lot of work went into that. Uh, Maria, what are your thoughts on this one?
3: Yeah, I, you know, it's funny, I understand the humor in creating a creative narrative, but at the end of the day, and not duping the system, and maybe this is just the logical insurance side of me, right? Of, you know, in the US, the cost of insurance fraud is over 40 billion a year, and that comes out to four hundred, seven hundred dollars per year in the form of increased premiums for families. So duping a system that is actually meant to protect individuals, is they're just screwing other people who really need help out of it. So totally understand sort of the humor and being able to create that story and the level of effort that had to have gone on to creating fake bills and a physio. And I mean, hopefully they were getting a big paycheck for that. But at the end of the day, it's it's an interesting place to be of, you know, sharing that across the board with the entire nation. And then, you know, Nigel, to your point of how much of this can we get caught in the future, right? With technology and, and how do we start to to lessen the burden of that um, longer term?
0: Yeah, I think it's particularly sort of almost poignant when it's health insurance, when you know that, as you've already said, a lot of people go bankrupt because they can't afford health insurance. So if you're duping a health insurer, you're raising premiums for other people. Before we wrap up, Lisa, I'm going to let you have the final word on this.
2: Well, travel insurance is uh, no stranger to fraud. (laughs) (laughs) It's fairly easy to set up a fake physio office uh, when you have a friend in Malaysia and you happen to be traveling there, unfortunately. Uh, so we, we do see a number of fake claims come over to us. Fortunately, they're, they're fairly easy to catch using technology, uh, before you file a claim. So, uh, that is something that, that we're, we're pretty good at here in the travel insurance industry, but fake claims, fraudulent claims, very common for us.
0: All right. Well, um, I think we will leave it there for this week. But thank you so much to everyone for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Lisa, I'll come to you first.
2: Sure. Uh, you can visit our website at battleface.com. or You can get me on LinkedIn or my email address, lconway at battleface.com. Perfect. Maria, how about you?
3: Yeah, you can find more about us at getspot.com and uh, LinkedIn and just Maria at getspot.com. Always
0: interested in connecting.
1: Perfect. And Nigel. I'm on Twitter as always, enjoying exercise, baking and the good old world of insurance at Nigel Walsh. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah
0: Kachansky. Thank you so much to all of my guests today and thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, do subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and it does help others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Insider, or you can find us on Twitter at Insiders, or you can email podcast 11 ofscom Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.